to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. IER's senior economist, Robert Murphy, recently visited Connecticut College to give a presentation on the economic response to climate change. Today's episode features a recording of that presentation. To find out more about Dr. Murphy's work on this topic and many more, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. So thank you everyone for coming out. Um, I want to clarify, somebody asked me when I posted the details for this, they said, Bob, why are you giving a talk on climate change on um, the opening weekend for Avengers? And I think the real reason is, Daniel, I had no idea. We didn't check the calendar to realize, but uh, I am tomorrow, so no spoilers, please. So what I want to talk to you guys today about is the economic response to climate change. So this is one of my areas of expertise. I'm the senior economist at uh, IER, the Institute for Energy Research. So I know we're going to have people here of different levels of um, knowledge. And so I'll try to, and I'm only going to go 45 minutes and then save 15 minutes for your Q&A. So I'm just going to hit some main things here. This is not going to be the complete story, obviously, if you want to get more or if I say something and you want to you know, see, see some of the documentation for that, by all means, um, just talk to me afterwards or, or email me and I'd be happy to help you out. So the first thing I want to stress here is that there is not this, this clash between these two things. And what, what often happens is I, I've been to conferences where I've given talks and my policy conclusions tend to be different from what let's say the conventional wisdom is, or what you would hear in the standard media treatment, like if you're listening to NPR, doing a story on climate change and what needs to be done, the impression they would give you is that, oh, everybody who's scientific about this has a certain position, except maybe a few wacky outliers, and, and anyone who disagrees with that either is ignorant of the science, or you know, is a paid shill for big oil, something like that. And so here I want to stress that all of the standard results I'm going to give you are coming from the <coughs> consensus sources, okay? And so you'll see as we go through this thing that I'm not gonna be quoting like from the Heritage Foundation or some rogue scientist out at a mid-tier university. I'll be quoting from like the reports that the UN puts out or I'll be quoting from the EPA or the Obama administration to make some of the points I'm, I'm making, all right? So the main thing I'm stressing here is that this is not ideological per se, so it's true I do have my own views about political philosophy and the proper role of federal government. I, I wouldn't trust the people in Washington to intervene in energy markets if they told us, oh, we're, we're doing it because we care about climate change. I don't believe them. Right? So that, that's where I'm coming from personally in terms of my philosophy. But I realize other people might not agree with that. And so here, like I say, for the content of this particular talk and what I'm going to be showing you, you'll see, I mean, you can say maybe I'm biased, but... I'm not going to be making appeals about, oh, we can't trust these people. You'll see this is just the, the rhetoric doesn't fit um, the standard uh, narrative you hear on NPR and so forth. Okay, so maybe one way to show you how stark this contrast is. So again, what I'm trying to get you to see is a lot of mainstream economists would be for certain measures to mitigate climate change, right? For a carbon tax or what's called cap and trade in the Q&A, if you want to bat those around, that's fine. Uh, but what I want to stress is that the, the standard view of what should be done, the, the way it's presented in the media, the economics of climate change doesn't support that. And the, the best way I can show you this contrast 
is some of you may remember, so it was this last fall, it was the same weekend when this news broke that on the one hand, the UN, through what's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, they gave this special report showing all the different ways that the governments of the world could take these types of actions in order to try to get close to limiting total global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Right? So that's like the, the new sort of target, the ambitious target that they're saying this really would, would uh, you know, err on the set of caution, we, things would not get out of hand if we could limit total global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And then this thing that came out last fall was the UN you know, talking to all the various experts in the different fields giving reports on here's different measures governments could do to try to get towards this goal. At the same time, William Nordhaus, is in a, he wins the Nobel Prize in economics, and he's one of the pioneers in the economics of climate change. Right? So Nordhaus, going back at least to the 1970s, was publishing articles on like natural resource economics, and then once global warming really started taking off as a serious scientific issue, he started you know, modeling the economics of it. And also, in case you don't know, Nordhaus is not a right-wing person at all. He uh, was one of the co-authors with Paul Samuelson of a famous, you know, let's call it left-wing economics book that was very Keynesian in terms of government, you know, advocating a role for government to smooth out the business cycle. So Nordhaus, ideologically, is not like a small government person, just, just for, so you realize that. And so what's funny is you would think, you know, Nordhaus wins the Nobel Prize for his work on the economics of climate change. The UN's coming out saying these are the things governments need to do to limit warming to 1.5C, or at least to try to hit that ambitious target. Because look at it, you know, every year is bringing more data about how dangerous climate change is. So you would probably think the guy who just won the Nobel Prize, his work would at least be consistent with that, right? You, I mean, surely. And actually, no, his own work. I could show you quite clearly that what the UN's target was was crazy. All right, and I'll, so I'll show, I'll show you a slide. But so this, it, it, it would be, I'm trying to think of an analogy that would do this justice. I suppose it would be like if, where when someone wins the Nobel Prize, you know, in medicine, and the Surgeon General comes out with recommendations for whatever, breastfeeding or something, or when to get checked for cancer, and that person's work who just won the award was you know, saying what the government was doing was totally bad and was going to you know, harm people. Like, it would be something like that. So this is from Nordhaus's uh, paper he wrote in 2017, just summarizing you know, his work. And you can see here that so this text is from him. This, I just took a screenshot of it. And so that straight line is, is saying the baseline. So he's saying if, if the governments of the world did nothing, and these are the years... And this is the total global temperature increase. So what, how this is quoted is it's from the year 1900. All right, that's the baseline. Okay, so they're saying this is how the Earth would warm. And you can see if, if the governments of the world, quote, do nothing or do nothing additional beyond when he was doing this analysis, his model showed that by the year 2100, you can see that line goes up, and that's up to about 4 degrees Celsius of warming. Okay, and so, wow, that's, that's a lot. That's way above... You know, what we hear is, is the conventional targets. But Nordhaus, that, that blue line, you see the one with the blue circles there, that's what he calls opt up there. And so that's short here. What, he, what that legend means is that's the optimal amount of warming if the governments of the world enacted a carbon tax calibrated to what Nordhaus's model says is the right one. So let me be clear. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying William Nordhaus is 
the, the authority and what he says is final. I'm just saying the guy who won the Nobel Prize for his work on this stuff, if you asked him your model that you developed, that's you know, one of the cutting edge models in this area, his model was one of the three that the Obama administration used when they were modeling this stuff to give recommendations for what they call the social cost of carbon, if you know that phrase. So this, this is you know, what the experts are using, and I'm saying that own, his own model shows the optimal amount of warming is about 3.5 degrees Celsius through the year 2100. So why is there, you know, why would the optimal warming be zero, right? Why would you just say, let's not have any more global warming if it's a bad thing? And the reason is, well, because it's costly, right? That what's causing human-caused climate change, and notice with this stuff too, I'm not, I'm, I'm totally stipulating for the sake of argument all the conventional, you know, physics and chemistry here, so I'm not being a denier. I'm saying on their own terms, this is what the situation is. Human activity releases CO2 and other greenhouse gases that causes the earth to be warmer than it otherwise would be, and then at some point that starts causing significant harm to humans, and, you know, measured in various ways, different types of impacts. So Nordhaus's work was an attempt to say what's the trade-off, that, you know, we, we can limit CO2 emissions and other greenhouse gas emissions, but, like, there's a reason we, we emit so much of it right now. It's, it's easy to produce electricity from coal, or it was for a long time. Gasoline's pretty, conventional gasoline's very... Uh, useful in many respects, right? If it weren't for the fact that all global warming is a thing, gasoline would be great, right? It's just now, oh wait, there's this potential negative externality, as economists call it. So what Nordhaus was doing in his work was trying to balance those two things, and he found, you know, his 2017 update, at least, of his model, he was saying that, yeah, in my mind, the governments of the world put in the right policies to penalize carbon dioxide emissions the right amount, because you wouldn't want it to go to zero, but you also don't want to just have, you know, the, the, mar the free market decide. He thought that those, were, those extremes were both wrong. He was saying in his model, it looks like, yeah, the optimal amount of warming to allow would be about 3.5 C. Now, I know if, if this isn't your area, okay, the UN says 1.5, he says 3.5, what's the big deal? But th there's a huge chasm there in terms of, you know, what, how much impact that would be. So a lot of natural sciences, scientists in this area, the difference to them between just 2C and 1.5C is the difference between, you know, catastrophe or not. And I'm not putting words in it. They would call it a catastrophe. So you can imagine 3.5C, I and mean, that would be completely unacceptable. They would say, no, there's going to be runaway climate change, and yet the guy who won the Nobel Prize, his own work, suggests this. So this is, again, my, my point here is not to say, oh, Nordhaus is right and the other people are wrong. I'm just saying, isn't that weird that the guy who wins the Nobel Prize at the same time the UN comes out with this thing, his own work shows that that um, goal is, is far too aggressive. Another way of, of getting it across to you, so this, I had to go back to his uh, 2007 version of his model, so these numbers, if he updated them, would be different. The reasons I couldn't find him doing this kind of calculation with you know, the updates of the model, but this is just to give you an idea of what I mean. So back when he... Uh, again, this is Nordhaus's model. Back when he was estimating the, the net benefits or costs of various types of climate policies, right? So these are different things you might do if you were various governments in the world and you were trying to do something to fight climate change. So he said if you did the optimal tax, and by the way, that word DICE, that's just the acronym for his model. It's Dynamic Integrated Climate Economy Model, something like that. So that's, that's what DICE stands for. So he's saying if you did my optimal carbon tax, humanity would gain about $3.37 trillion on net, okay? And it, it, we don't mean 
literal dollars. Obviously, we mean measuring things in, in dollar terms. Okay, so again, my point here is not that there's anything special or magical about these particular numbers. I just want you to see the magnitude and the sign that he assigned to these various scenarios. So he was saying, in the best case scenario, where all the governments of the world did the textbook correct thing, we would avoid a certain amount of potential climate change damage. So those would be the, the gross benefits. But then we would also have slower conventional economic growth, right? Because we're putting limits, we're, we're using more expensive forms of electricity, it's more expensive to drive our car if we have limits on emissions. So there's a cost. Otherwise, maybe we have emissions go to zero. Why not? Because it, you know it's painful. And so he thought where that optimal trade-off is would mean we have $3 trillion in change more in benefits than in cost. So it's a good thing we're $3 trillion richer if we do that. Okay, so Nordhaus is not a laissez-faire guy. He wants governments to do something. He's for a carbon tax, and he's saying if you did the right one, we'd be $3 trillion richer measured in a certain way. Okay? So whether you think that's a sensible sentence or not, the issue is look at the other policies. You can see they start doing other types of things and the, the net benefits go down. If they start doing stuff that's too aggressive, according to him, like limiting atmospheric CO2 to 420 parts per million, and by the way, there are groups out there, there's a website, I think it's 380.org, where they're saying we think the optimal level of CO2 in the atmosphere is 380 parts per million, right? So this is far, a far looser, more lenient target. And again, Nordhaus back then was saying that would make humanity almost $15 trillion poorer than doing nothing. Okay, so these numbers are the net benefits or costs relative to a do-nothing baseline. Okay, so what I'm just trying to show you is the things that the UN is saying right now would be down here, right? That's if you, if you map and said, okay, what do we have to limit the CO2 in the atmosphere to in order to get a 1.5 C total warming? They would be down here. So you can see not only does Nordhaus say that they would hurt there'd be you know, a cure worse than the disease, if you want to think of it like that, but it's several times bigger in magnitude than even the benefits flowing from what he thought would be the optimal policy. Okay, so here again, showing if governments were too aggressive, Nordhaus works show that could be far worse than the potential benefits. All right, let me just mention one somewhat technical point, and don't worry, the, the whole talk's not gonna be this much, but. For the, those of you who are here, you really want to understand part of what's going on in this and why this is a slippery topic. And I think a lot of people don't understand. I could say trick, but that sounds like it's duplicitous. And I'm not, I'm not saying it is duplicitous, but when people say things like the social cost of carbon, that's what SCC stands for. So that's a technical concept that says how much, um, when you emit one more ton of CO2, how, many, how much net damage does that cause? to humanity, and they, they measure it and they come up with a number, and then that's what the optimal carbon tax is supposed to be. And so what I want to mention to you, though, is that the discount rate you use in that analysis drives everything. All right, and I'll, I'll give you an example in a minute just so you can see numerically what I'm talking about. And normally they would use a 3% and a 7% discount rate. Okay, so discount rate just means if you have future costs and benefits, how do you translate them into present costs and benefits? Okay, so this, I just grabbed this because they were at my fingertips. This happens to be from the May 2013 update. I went back to the Obama administration because there's a lot of people don't agree with what people in the Trump EPA did. All right, so I don't want you to be concerned that this is ideological and they're doing something slippery. 
This was from the Obama administration's EPA when they gave me their update in May 2013, or the one, was the one I grabbed, of what's called the social cost of carbon, the SCC. This is what they were, if you were, if you were following that stuff and you read it in the newspaper, they would be reporting this one probably. So it's a 3% discount rate. So they would say, oh, the, the, the social cost of carbon, like in the year 2020, is $43 a ton. So that's like for every ton of CO2 humanity emits, in a sense, that's causing $43 worth of damage to humanity. You know, that's just because of climate change, all things considered, measured over the, the next three centuries, all right, in, in the computer simulation. That's where these numbers come from. But if you went from a 3% to a 5% discount rate, all of a sudden, look at how much the social cost of carbon drops. If you go the other way and you make it lower, the 2.5%, the social cost of carbon goes up. Okay, so just, for example, look at the 2010's numbers. If you use a 3% discount rate, it's $33 a ton. If you use a 5%, it gets cut in a third to $11. Okay, so the, the, the size of the numbers isn't the issue here. I just want you to see how much you can make them shrink or expand just by changing that one dial. So again, this has nothing to do with the assumptions about the chemistry or what do clouds do in terms of trapping heat. This has nothing to do with that. We're looking at the same simulation of physical, what happens to earth and ocean, you know, sea level rises in the computer simulation. And it's just saying, okay, it's under certain, and it runs, you know, thousands of them. It has different, you know, and there's chance variable outcomes and things. And then it looks at all the things and it somehow assesses the damage in money terms and dollar terms. And then, over the, the window collapses into a present figure in the present. And so I'm saying because the nature of climate change means really bad stuff might happen 150 years from now, they have to come up with a way of saying, okay, well, what if there's $500 billion worth of coastal property damage that doesn't occur until the year 2200? How do we value that right now? So it's not the same thing as $500 billion of damage that happens next Thursday because right, it's not going to happen until the year 2200. So you, you want to make it less than 500 billion, but you also don't want to say, well, let's just ignore it completely, because then that's a big deal if our actions somehow caused $500 billion of damage in the year 2200. We want to take that into account. We wouldn't want to ignore it, but you also wouldn't treat it the same as this $500 billion of damage that you're causing next week. Okay, So that's what the discount rate does. It's saying every year, what percentage do we discount the importance of that cost? And so I'm saying because the nature of these things where there are huge damages that don't occur for decades or longer in the future, you can see how much just tweaking that discount rate affects the numbers. And so what I told you before in the previous slide was the standard thing that federal agencies use, this, the rule from OMB, when they're doing cost-benefit analysis, just so it's apples to apples, is they say you've got to use a 3% rate and a 7% discount rate. And that has to do with like the, the cost of capital and how much consumers you know, would pay to, to save money and things like that, how much they're paid to save. That's where those numbers came from at the time OMB issued it. And so just to give you an idea of how screwy this is, the Obama EPA, when they were publishing these results, they didn't publish what the social cost of carbon would be at a 7% discount rate. They just flat out didn't publish it, even though OMB required them to do so. And so all the agencies had to run cost-benefit analyses without that information. And there was stuff like reports would say at a 7% rate, and there would be an asterisk, and you'd look down at the bottom, and it would say, we actually don't have the 7% rate, so we're using the 5% rate because it's not available. All right, so I'm just saying, like, they were 
ostensibly complying with the regulation, even though they couldn't. So what I'm now saying to you is why didn't they give the number? Well, again, look at how this works. At a, at a 3% rate, it's like $33 a ton. If you bump it up to five, it drops to 11. If you don't brought it up to 7%, it would go down even more. And I think in some of these early years, it might actually have been negative. Okay, so they would have been, the computer would have been spitting out the result if you used a 7% discount rate that we should be subsidizing coal-fired electricity. You know, we should be sending subsidies to, to coal miners, which of course is, you know, that's, that's not what they want the answer to be. Okay, so again, it's just a quirk of how these things are modeled. And so my, my point is when the story coming forth from the media is that, oh yeah, this is all the science involved and you know, anyone who's reputable knows there's immediate action we need to take on climate. I'm saying a lot of that is just driven by something as innocuous as, well, what rate are we using to discount the future? And that's clearly not something that a chemist knows the answer to. That's not, that's not something from natural science. That's, that's like philosophy, if you, if you will. Okay, so again, just another quirk of this to show you. These are not, you know, this is the Obama administration's own table that I'm, that I'm showing you this stuff from. Okay, let me use the Paris Agreement to also illustrate, again, this divide between the way it's treated in the media versus if you just dig a little bit and see what the numbers are. So, as many of you, I'm sure, know, Trump on June 1st, 2017, said that the U.S. is going to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. There's a long, drawn-out process by which that would actually be affected if it happens. And the reaction at the time was apocalyptic. So, for example, Stephen Hawking saying this could push Earth over the brink. Um, Paul Krugman in the New York Times had uh, an, an op-ed saying Trump's id threatens the planet. Okay, and he was saying that we need to elect Hillary, or he was, before he was saying we need to elect Hillary Clinton because you know, what Trump's going to do in terms of deregulation, Earth itself is at stake. All right, so you guys have heard this rhetoric. And so what's interesting is you would think that, okay, according to the consensus literature then, the Paris Agreement must be able to, to solve the problem and shoot if only Trump hadn't ruined it. Right? I mean, that, that clearly has to be the, the narrative. Otherwise, this, this reaction doesn't make any sense. Let me just give you a little bit of background about the Paris Agreement. So it was negotiated under UN auspices from representatives from almost 200 countries. Uh, it was adopted in December of 2015, and more than 195 parties have signed and 175 have ratified. And what they said in the Paris Agreement was they want to limit global warming. Again, they, they refer to like a pre-industrial baseline to keep that total warming well below 2 degrees Celsius and pursue efforts to limit it to 1.5 C. So again, I've already showed you with the work of Nordhaus, both of those targets don't make it, it would be better to do nothing than those, according to his work. But okay, so that's what it's, what it's saying. And then each country announced its own intended contribution. Okay, let me, just as an aside, to put in perspective, you know, how much the US's decision may or may not matter on this, so it's certainly true that historically the U.S. was a, a big emitter relative to the rest of the world in terms of CO2. But going forward, I picked the A1B, that's one of the climate scenarios. Using a conventional way to, to measure emissions or to forecast emissions, you can see that the U.S. going from 2017 to 2100 is only going to have about 11% of total global emissions. Whereas India is going to have more, China is going to have about triple the U.S. emissions, all right? So again, it's largely what other countries do anyway on, on this matter. And so some people say, well, 
you know, if we don't act quickly, then China's going to take the lead on renewables. Okay, I mean, that, that might be bad news for you know, U.S. industry, but certainly that, that's good, you know, the, the narrative is we want to stop global warming. And okay, that's, that's what you would need to have happen. Okay, but back to my main story here. Again, the fact that Trump said the U.S., we're pulling out of this thing, we're not doing it, and everyone's saying, uh-oh, there goes the planet, that doesn't make sense when you realize that people who are extreme advocates for strong global warming policies, for example, this guy David Roberts from Vox, he was saying no country on Earth is taking the two-degree climate target seriously. All right? And he wrote that in late April of 2017, so that was before Trump pulled out of Paris. Okay, so going into Trump's decision to tell him the U.S. is pulling out, serious people, and again, if you don't know him, but just your background, again, this guy David Roberts is very much in favor of aggressive government action to intervene, and he's telling everybody, the governments of the world by their own announced targets, that's not going to add up to stopping climate change from, uh, you know, surpassing the two-degree target. Give you another example. So there's this website, climateactiontracker.org, you can check out. Again, these are, these are not Republican conservatives by any stretch. These are left-wing progressives who are very much thinking humanity is going to wreck the planet if we don't do something quick. And they have on their website this nice icon, you know, thermometer showing, looking at the Paris Agreement. Okay, so you can see here the goal. So that's 1.5C. I know it's going to be small for some of you in the back there. It says, we are here, one degree C warming as of 2018. Okay, so as of the year 2018, when we say how much has the Earth warmed, it's about one degree Celsius compared to pre-industrial times. And so they're saying, oh, we only got a half degree left of comfort from when scientists are saying we're going to go beyond a tipping point. This is like, you know, what the aggressive UN goal was and what the Paris aggressive goal is. And they're saying right now the pledges and targets. So if we took all the countries at their word for who are in the Paris Agreement, and let's assume they all did what they said they were going to do, even so, warming could be anywhere from 3.8 C down to 2.4, and you know, best guess of about 3 degrees Celsius. And then if you say the more realistic thing, like, okay, let's not say what the countries, what the governments promised they would do, what are they actually doing right now? Because again, it's, it's painful. You're one government, you're going to limit your country's emissions, that mostly benefits the rest of the world in terms of lower temperature, whereas it's your economy that suffers. So that's kind of the deal here, is that each participant is agreeing to slow its own growth, but kind of on the expectation, okay, you guys are all gonna reciprocate, right? So we're all gonna keep the planet from warming too much according to you know, these standard models. So you would expect the pledges to be more optimistic or generous than they actually follow through with, especially if some other government gets elected down the road. And so this site, again, that's very concerned about the re what they think is the obvious reality, the existential threat of climate change, they're saying right now, the current policies of all the governments who's, who are still in the Paris Agreement will lead to global warming about 3.3 C. Okay, so, you know, to me, this, the story here is not, oh my gosh, Donald Trump pulled out. The story is clear that this, this was not working, it is not working, and it's, you're distracting people by focusing on Trump having pulled out. So it's true, all the things, no one's gonna stick in it if the US isn't in it. I mean, I, I get that, that claim about leadership, but wouldn't it also be a leader to, to pull out of something that clearly isn't gonna solve the problem even on its own terms, okay? So whatever you think about Trump's decision, I'm trying to get you to see here, 
the only way that normal reaction makes sense is if this Paris Agreement were going to work, and then Trump ruined everything. Whereas you can see, no, this this was it wasn't anywhere close to being on track to working, even according to their own models. Okay, uh, real quickly, let me mention something because I. I know some of you might be more policy wonkish, and especially with being conservative Republicans, this is something that's been floated around certain like DC think tanks to conservatives and libertarians, and it goes something like this. So like Arthur Laffer took this approach, the Laffer curve fame. Um, there's a, the Niskanen Center in DC, um, R Street is an organization out of Texas. So what they're doing is they're going around to um, and, they, and they have a few like Curbelo and, and a few other, uh, they had some, you know, people up, uh, Republican legislators. And what they were doing is saying to the Republican base, or, you know, conservatives generally, let's say, look, at, we understand you don't trust Al Gore, okay? We don't trust him either, we don't like the guy. But this is a real thing. And they say, but you know what, it doesn't matter. Whether or not this climate change stuff is the threat that, the people on the left, the Democrats, the Hillary, or you know, whoever the latest person is that they're worried about, is saying, cut a deal with them, call their bluff. Say to them, okay, if this isn't about you know big government, if you really are just concerned about saving the planet, go ahead and put in place a carbon tax, but then agree that you won't use it to spend more money. You're not gonna spend it on you know green projects, you're not gonna give it as block green assistance to other groups, or you're not gonna use it to you know, fund new, new battery programs. What you're going to do is give tax cuts to Americans, right? Lower payroll tax, lower the income tax rate, and have it be revenue neutral. So the government's not keeping more money. They're just, you know, putting in place a carbon tax to disincentivize people from emissions, and then they use that money to reduce taxes on labor and capital formation, right? So you, if you know, like, Arthur Lapper, how he's, you know, he's real big on trying to cut taxes and the, the stimulative supply side effects of that, that's what he was saying, that if, if if it's bad to emit stuff, and their slogan is tax bads, not goods, right? which is kind of a catchy thing. They say, look, we all agree carbon emissions probably aren't great. Maybe that's not as bad as some people are warning, but probably not a good thing. Whereas working and saving, that everyone agrees that's good stuff. So if the government's got to tax something, let's tax emissions. And again, we can call the left's bluff and tell them, you want a carbon tax? Okay, fine. But you, can't get to, you don't get to spend that money. You've got to use it to, to get tax cuts. And if you don't want to do that, then that kind of reveals this isn't about the climate, is it? It's just you want more money, right? So that was the, the rhetorical strategy. So I understand where they're coming from, but I just want to point out that that doesn't, that doesn't work on its own terms, right? That the literature does not support that. If they go so far as to say, which plenty of them do say, that whether or not climate change is a big deal, if we put in place a carbon tax and use the money to, to, re, to cut these other taxes in a revenue-neutral scheme, the economy would grow faster, you know, we'd have more employment, and if climate change is a thing, well, then that helps there too, right? That's the way they were selling it, and I want to say that it's actually, the literature doesn't support that. So this is the one slide I'll just show you on that, and then I'll move on to a separate topic here. Uh, this is just showing what happens to the economy from implementing a carbon dioxide tax at $30 a ton and then using the revenue to refund different things. Okay, so if you just give the money back to Americans in a dividend payment, which some groups are wanting to do, it hurts the economy the most. You can see it gets down to like about negative three and a half percent of GDP. So the, the economy is about three and a half percent smaller with that approach than if they didn't do anything. 
the only way to get a positive amount, that green line, is if they use the, the money from the carbon tax to cut capital taxes, like the corporate income tax. Okay, so again, just this, what this is showing, and this chart was from a pro-carbon tax group. So again, with all this stuff, I'm going to people who are sympathetic to it, and I'm using their own numbers just to show you some of the stronger claims for aggressive action don't, don't hold up, that if you were to put in place a tax on carbon and use the money dollar for dollar to cut other taxes, unless you just did it for the corporate income tax, uh, you would, the economy would, would, would hurt. Okay, so the last thing here I'll mention, so I've gone through and shown you, it's true, I don't think that the impacts of climate change are as severe as some of the more apocalyptic measures or, or warnings, and, but, and I've, I think I've shown you the approach of the governments of the world to try to solve this so far isn't working, even according to their own warnings. So you say, okay, so what do we do? Um, so let me just mention, I, if this is an issue, you know, humans are working on other possible solutions that don't involve government funding or you know, specific government program. So here, let me give you four different types of options. So one thing is, and I know some of these are fanciful, but again, you want people thinking outside the box because the, the stuff they're doing right now is not going to work according to their own models. Um, so when Mount Pinatubo erupted, you know, put up a lot of ash in the air, and then global temperatures were measurably lower for several months afterward, right, until the ash fell out of the air. And so using that idea, scientists are working on ways of pumping up sulfur dioxide into an appropriate elevation, and, you know, the, and the number keeps coming down for the cost, but they're saying right now to minimize the impact of global warming. So again, the, the physics of it is you've got sulfur dioxide now that you're pumping up in the air that reflects some of the incoming sunlight. So that counteracts the fact that higher CO2 traps more you know, heat in because of the greenhouse effect. So by doing that, that would cost about $250 million. And that's how much Al Gore wanted to raise to, you know, to spend money on just raising awareness, right, in terms of we need to do something about climate change. Again, just showing you, I, I didn't show you the numbers before, but the cost in terms of just limiting emissions to try to arrest climate change is in the several of trillions of dollars in terms of you know, the present value of, the, of that future flow. So if we were going to just limit emissions as a way to try to directly stop it, you can see how expensive that would be. Another idea is to fertilize the oceans with iron. Okay, and so you, you drop iron, that makes you know, various things bloom. So there's more plant growth in the oceans and that absorbs more CO2. Right, so again, what the, the issue is there's too much CO2 in the air. How do we suck some of that out? This is one proposal. Again, scientists are looking at that to figure out like, how could we actually do this on a massive scale. Uh, you may have heard some of you, this uh, physicist Freeman Dyson, um, he had an idea of genetically modified trees to absorb more CO2. All right, so he, he was saying, okay, it would take a while to get to a certain point, but certainly by the year 2030, 2040, he thinks it would be easy for agronomists who have engineered trees, you know, normal trees, except they have the property of their very absorbent of CO2. So that's, you know, think about what a tree does. It takes CO2 out of the atmosphere, you know, sucks it into itself. So he's saying that's one way of implementing this. And then beyond that, there's literally a direct air capture technology they're working on. You can go look at YouTube videos of this. 
So it's just, you know, giant turbines that spin, they suck air through them. Just like if you have like a dehumidifier in your basement or something and it sucks moisture, well, they can literally extract carbon directly from the air. So they, technologically that's possible, but they wouldn't do this right now because it's too expensive. It, it would be cheaper to just not put CO2 in the atmosphere in the first place rather than sucking it out. But this is one thing that they're, they are working on. Okay, so in, in summary here for these prepared remarks, the yes, there, there is an issue with climate change. I think a lot of the warnings have been exaggerated. So if you look, go and read the fine print on some of this, a lot of this stuff, it will say these things could happen or may happen. And yeah, it, it might. And you know, there could be an, an asteroid that comes. There's, there's all sorts of things that could threaten and cause huge damages, even though they might be low probability. And the question is, what do people do in terms of uh, getting ready for it? And I would say the particular measures that the governments of the world have proposed, if you actually look at it and say, okay, doing that thing versus not doing that thing, is that going to solve the problem? And the answer is no, it wouldn't. And even something like the Paris Climate Agreement, which you know, clearly is the best example of a global coordinated effort of the governments of the world to solve something like this, you see the problem that what they've agreed to wouldn't come anywhere close to solving the problem according to the way that they've set it up. And then again, the last thing is the rhetoric here does not match the underlying economics of it. So yes, physicists and chemists and biologists, they can certainly talk about different scenarios and look at the, the natural science and say, if this happens, if this much you know, emissions occur, these might be some of the impacts. But that by itself doesn't prove, therefore, we should stop doing that. So to give you an analogy, an engineer could look at a plane and tell you, well, here's the chance that this plane's going to crash. You know, given the way it is, given the maintenance you're doing, every such and such you know, million passenger miles, you would expect one plane crash. Is that enough information to know whether this plane should fly or not? It's actually, it's not, right? I mean, the only way to truly guarantee no plane crashes is if you don't fly. And that's clearly, we don't think that's the right thing to do. We still choose to fly even though, now if, if there was a 50-50 chance a plane's gonna crash, no one wants to get on that plane, right? So it's, the numbers matter. And what I'm saying here too is yes, there are certain risks in this literature, but when you go and analyze the numbers to see do they support the conclusions that are then trumpeted as just being matter of fact and obvious, it actually isn't. Uh, I, don't, I don't have it here too because I don't want to overwhelm you guys with charts, but a more recent example I worked on where somebody was pointing out, oh, well, here's what the UN says will happen in such and such, or there could be warming of up to this amount, there could be damage up to 25% of global GDP could be wiped out by climate change if we do nothing. If you go and look and figure out how did they get that number, it was something that was, they had like a probability distribution of what could happen, and it was like, you know, here was the middle of the bell curve, and, and it went way out to this tail end, and you couldn't even see the, the graphic anymore. Like, that's how little it was in terms of the event that would have to happen in order to justify the newspaper headline saying, new report says, you know, this much, you know, 25% of the global economy could be at stake. So that, that's not a false statement. Yeah, it could be. But when you look at the report, you see that's a vanishingly small possible outcome. That's probably not what that study said was going to happen. So with all this stuff, you know, humans are going to adapt. They're going to come up with ways to solve it. In, in general, even if something isn't a legitimate problem, I don't trust the governments of the world to solve it. And so I would say those of you who are 
concerned about this that you know come up with other types of solutions, things besides just saying, oh, let's let's have the government do X, Y, and Z to take care of it. Because in general, that usually doesn't work. And on the specific issue of climate change also, the policies that are proposed don't solve the problem, again, even on some terms. Okay, so thanks for your attention. I'll stop there, and I'll give the rest of the time for your questions.